great to be here this morning, to be in this place. It's a lousy day outside, but it's been a wonderful day here, and the music has been terrific. So thank you all so much, and thank you all, and all of these gifted musicians that have led us. It's a, It's been a great day, a great celebration of this Palm Sunday, this Passion Palm Sunday. Our scripture lesson for this morning, but before I read that, I meant to remind you about all the services this week and let me add my voice to others that you've heard. We hope you'll be here this Wednesday at noon. We'll have our community Lenten service here. It's the last of the seven services. It will be the best. Uh, As will the lunch that follows. So uh, we encourage you to please be here this Wednesday at noon, Thursday night, Holy Thursday at 6.30. Friday, Good Friday at noon, we'll be right here. And uh, then on Sunday, we begin with a sunrise service in Greenville Street Park. If it's like this weather-wise, we'll be in the parish hall, 7 o'clock. One of our certified lay speakers, Dr. Lewis Jackson, will be speaking for us. And uh, then we'll have our three other ordinary, but it's not ordinary because it's Easter services. So we invite you to come and be a part of all that's happening here this week. We're going to have some great times in worship and We would love to have all of you to come and bring some folk with you. Our scripture lesson for this day is a gospel lesson, Luke 19, beginning with verse 28. And because it is a gospel lesson, I will ask you to stand as you are able for the reading of the Holy Gospel. Luke 19, beginning with verse 28. After he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. As this... Lenten season in the dark wood begins to draw to a close. We look around us to acknowledge the kingdom, the family of faith that is here with us. Sojourners in the dark wood do not go it alone, but are blessed with the presence of others who help us to reflect, who discover things with us, who help us to understand the riches of a life lived well with intention. As Jesus comes to Jerusalem at the beginning of this faithful week, he is surrounded by those who will live the temptation, the uncertainty, 
the lostness, the thunderstruckness right alongside of him. The gifts of the dark wood. Temptation was one of them. What the tempter offered in the wilderness wasn't necessarily evil, but it tempted it attempted to circumvent the way that God would have it done. The second of the dark wood gifts was the gift of uncertainty. When we are so sure that we have it all together and have God all figured out, then it makes it very difficult for us to grow and to trust God more than ourselves. The third of the dark wood gifts was emptiness. God pours God's spirit into us as we empty ourselves of our selfish desires. And as God's spirit is poured into us, we begin to take on the shape and the form of a servant. The fourth of the dark wood gifts was getting lost. A couple of things here. Number one, don't ever buy a used car from someone who says they've never been lost. And number two, When the hymn writer states, I once was lost, he's probably underestimating. The fifth of the dark wood gifts was being thunderstruck, a flash of insight, something that rocked our world and hopefully left us in better shape than we were. And then there was and is today the sixth Sunday of the dark wood gifts, the gift of misfits. And I want us to look for just a little bit at what Eric Elms in his book, Gifts of the Dark Wood, means when he says misfits, when he uses that term. But also we're going to move on and think of misfits maybe in a more traditional sense, maybe in a way we we haven't thought about it in a little while. I want us to, as we do that, to visualize that band of misfits as they walked in following Jesus into Jerusalem on that fateful Sunday so long ago. What was that all about? All right, we'll move on. But keep in mind, already begin to think, if you will, about some of those misfits that you have encountered in your life. Who are those people? Eric Allen says that we may react to the word misfit reading into it more than he intends. And we are going to read into it more than he intends in just a little bit. But what he means by misfit is someone who is intentional about embracing the gifts of the dark wood, those that we just mentioned, and finding their place in this world, if not more so. He claims that there are at least three types of misfits who may serve as powerful companions in our travels in and through the dark wood. The first misfit is an interpretive guide or a mentor. Maybe somebody has spent a little more time in the dark wood than we have. Maybe they're more familiar with the trails that lead to a dead end or the trails that will lead you over the edge of a cliff or the trails maybe that lead straight toward doing the wrong good. A wise mentor or a guide with experience in the dark wood whom we trust implicitly is invaluable. Eric Ells has a mentor in his faith journey. He said he's had the same one for over three decades. Do we have someone that we look to who can lead us in the dark wood and elsewhere? The second misfit to lead us in our journey through the dark wood is a small band of traveling companions. 
those folks that we're comfortable sharing with our tragedies and our triumphs, our joys and our fears, and they would do the same for us. They are like welcoming campfires in the dark wood. We stumble into a clearing on a dark night, and there is a campfire giving us warmth and comfort and illumination. They value the dark wood gifts like emptiness and uncertainty and being lost just as readily as they celebrate the triumphs and the achievements in this world. It's from such groups that we come to recognize a very important thing. We're not alone. Hope you've got one of those groups. Maybe it's an early morning prayer group, a men's group, a women's group, a Sunday school class, a life group, a group of friends at work or elsewhere, a small group that you can count on and pour your heart out and they can do the same with you. And then the third misfit gift of the dark wood is a community of faith. And he said not just any community of faith, but a misfit community of faith. He believes there are a number of misfit communities of faith that are rising from the ashes of dying religious traditions. Think about that one for a little bit. We need to talk about that more maybe on another day. He says that if a personal mentor could be likened into an interpretive guide in the dark wood and a small group of dark wood traveling companions could be compared to a campfire on a dark night. A misfit community of faith could be likened to, his words now, an alehouse in the dark wood. As is common at alehouses, he says, in Great Britain or Ireland, and these are his words now, I would be speaking of something that I don't know a lot about. But he says, at those alehouses, those who gather in this misfit communities of faith are drawn there for camaraderie and conversation as well as the basic spirit of the place, which in both venues may be more the work of the Holy Spirit than we realize. At times, the whole place may break out, he said, in singing or in fighting. And they cater to a diverse crowd. There's a spirit within them that transcends them and gives them their unique identity. I thought about that in terms of the local church. Maybe so. A place where sometimes we break out in singing and other times we break out in fighting. Not so much, I hope, but it happens. But God's spirit works even through that. And moving on to the scripture lesson for Palm Sunday, Jesus had just finished telling or retelling some stories. He loved to tell stories, loved to teach and preach, but Jesus was the greatest of the storytellers, and he always had some magnificent stories. And now he was headed for Jerusalem, and he paused on the Mount of Olives near Bethphage and Bethany. Bethphage means house of figs. Bethany means house of Ananiah. The word Beth means house. Bethel is house of God. Bethlehem is house of bread. Bethphage, house of bricks, house of figs, house of Ananiah on the Mount of Olives and sending his folks on ahead of him to procure this unridden colt that was tied up there. And after a conversation with this unridden colt, they brought it to Jesus. Did you catch that back and forth when we read that passage? Go untied and if they ask you why you're untying it, tell me a Lord needs it, and they went, and they untied it, and the owner of the colt, rightly so, said, what are you doing? And they said, we're untied it, and they, you know, it's just back and forth. And in any way, 
they got it. They got what they were sent for. And as Jesus rode along that day, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. And they used their cloaks and put on the animal to form a saddle of sorts. And Jesus sat on the colt, rode along. They, they spread their cloaks on the road. It was such a joyful thing, or so it seemed, a loud voice. And they were recalling all the deeds of love and power and transformation that they had seen and experienced in the ministry of Jesus. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And some of the professional religious types, you know, the folks who always want to pull the plug on a good party, some of the professional religious types said to him, Teacher, tell these folks to hush up. Jesus said, If they did, the rocks themselves would raise a holy ruckus. Luke's account of this event differs somewhat from Matthew, Mark, and John. Only John tells us that these were palm branches being waved. Luke doesn't even mention branches. John tells us palm branches. Palm branches had become a symbol of Jewish nationalism on their coins. And in other places, they had the palm branch. You remember their commandment, our commandment, not to make any graven images. So it was wrong, they thought, to put the image of an animal or a person on a coin. But the palm could be placed there. And it became a symbol of Jewish nationalism. And when these palms were being waved that day, it was as they were saying, in your face, mighty Rome. They reminded folks that not bowing down to the gods of Rome, not bowing down to the Caesar who was perceived as a god, by not doing these things, they were casting themselves as misfits. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem has often been described as a triumphal entry, but was it? Was it? Maybe it was a protest march. You remember the palm branches. Maybe it was a parade. What does the song say? Everybody, we all love a parade. Maybe it was a funeral procession. Ride on, ride on, in majesty to die. Misfits. The 12 apostles who had known Jesus best, all these other disciples who had been blessed and healed and helped by Jesus and their family members who had been blessed and healed and helped, they were all there and they were seen by those in authority as rabble rousers. They must be forced to fit in lest Caesar, the Caesar, the emperor in far off Rome have to intervene. What could Caesar do? He could remove the governor, Pontius Pilate. He could remove the office of the high priest if he really wanted to strike a blow to the Jewish people. Those who dared to incite insurrection, to speak out against Rome, to lead revolutions, were often hung on a tree, which is another way of saying those who were crucified were considered misfits. Who are the misfits in our world? Do we ever number ourselves among them? Ever had that thought about yourself? Any of you remember a 1970 song by a group that I used to enjoy, a group called Lobo. Of course, their biggest hit was me and you and a dog named Boo, and so we won't talk about that today, but that's a, that's a fun song. But they did another song called A Little Different, and Mickey and I were listening to it yesterday in my vehicle, and... Uh, 
It's on my favorites list. And let me share just a couple of the lyrics with you, thinking about misfits. And Anyway, it's just a song, but still. Once upon my boyhood time, the circus came to town. I remember the church going people talking the carnies town. Misfits of society, that's what they said to me. So I sneaked up close and I watched them work. And I found that actually they laughed a lot. They sang out loud. The way they walked made them look kind of proud. A little different from you. A little different from me. A lot like a man who walked through Galilee. And then one other stanza. Mr. and Mrs. Goldstein moved in next door to us. The neighbors were indignant. They put up quite a fuss. The neighborhood had gone to pot and they had worked so hard. So I sneaked out back, peeked through the fence, and watched them do the yard. They laughed a lot. They sang out loud. They looked just like the rest of the crowd. A little different from you. A little different from me. A lot like a man who walked through Galilee. Everyone is different, but everyone's the same, riding round in circles on life's mysterious train. I'm thinking now about a person I met a while back. I guess I met this guy in 2009, summertime. He was rather, he was a young adult. He was rather awkward of speech. He had an awkward gait, if you ever observed him walking. It's certainly not in the cards that this person would have ever been accepted as a member of a precision military drill team. And there are many other places where this guy would not fit in, thereby making him a misfit. We're talking about Christmas movies one day, and I remember this so clearly. Christmas movies or Christmas TV shows, and and this guy's favorite show was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And he said he especially liked the part about the island of misfit toys. How would we fit in there? Do misfits always know that they're misfits? Who's to say? Who gets to decide? Will Davis Campbell died a few years ago. He was by his own admission, by his own confession, called himself a bootleg Baptist preacher. I fell in love with his writing. I only heard him speak once. He had some things, sayings that he used that I really like when people would ask him, what, what do you do? You know, how people ask that. They want to know what you do for a living. What do you do? And his response was always, well, what do I do about what? And then when they said, no, no, you know what I mean. What do you do for a living? And he said, I write rare books. Um, he was a member enlisted in the United States Navy. He was a farmer. He was a writer. He was a social activist. He was a native of Mississippi, a graduate of Wake Forest University and the Yale Divinity School, served as a, in World War II in the Navy, a university chaplain later. And during the 1950s and 1960s, he became one of the best-known, most conspicuous white Southerners in the Civil Rights Movement. And... Many of his colleagues and peers considered him a misfit. 1999, he uh, put together a book of his short essays called Soul Among Lions. And it's a story about a misfit, and I want to share that with you. He said, a fellow 
moved in our area while not exactly polished around the fringes. He was very bright. He owned a construction company, made a lot of money. Some folks think, though, that he worked at being a rube, mixes casual dress with high fashion, chews tobacco, gets often in the grape, and uses flawed grammar on purpose. His name is Peebo, at least that's what he'll answer to is Peebo. Plays a pretty mean guitar and we have a little country band that we play together and he named it after our tractors. Some evenings we gather in his equipment shop and Peebo boils peanuts and he fries catfish and he makes what he calls swamp gravy and we pick till midnight. Peebo has one cultural blemish. He uses an inappropriate racial slur. I wish he didn't, but he does. An urbane proper lady came by one day and said, our families didn't use that word and people ought to stop using it if we're going to be friends. I reminded her of the violent winter storm that swept through our hollow a few years back. Roads were blocked. Power lines were down. And while our family spent the night huddled around the fire roasting hot dogs, Peebo was on his bulldozer till daybreak, clearing the roads, delivering coal and food and medicine to the poor among our black and white neighbors. She said that didn't excuse his using that inappropriate word. And I agreed, Will said, but I reminded her of some words of Jesus, not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. I reckon there's more than one way to use an inappropriate word, be it verbally or by callous disregard for the neighbor near at hand. There's political correctness, I already said, but there's also moral correctness. Deep down, Peebo knows about both. Too many of us, I fear, don't. So what about Peebo? What do you say? Is he a misfit or what? You ever known a Peebo? Ever been one in your life? One of the most memorable sermons that I ever heard preached was at Pastor's School at Epworth by the Sea on St. Simon's Island a few summers ago. The preacher was Dr. Walter Brueggemann. He taught at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia, for years and years, a Presbyterian seminary. He was preaching to preachers. And I guarantee you that's a tough congregation. And he worked his way through a long list in the Old Testament of the matriarchs and the patriarchs of the faith. Sarah and Abraham, Rebecca and Isaac, Jacob and Leah and Rachel and on and on he went, lifting up the flaws and the faults of each and every character. And there were many to lift up. His major point was that God has always worked through rascals and scoundrels and the less than honest, the misfits, to get God's work done in this world. And then he concluded the sermon by looking out at all of us and saying, and I can see God is still doing it. Fast forward now, if you will, to April 14th, 2019. Is God still doing it that way? My word, I hope so. Amen.